We have just spent the last like 15 years in the book of in the book of Romans it seems. And if you know anything about Romans, you know that it gets really good at chapter 12, uh, and that's when you get to all the practical stuff. And uh, so here you're, you're thinking, okay, it's coming, it's coming, and then what are we doing here? What are we pulling on you? Well, here's the deal. We were thinking about it, and um, we felt like there is such a natural break between the end of Romans 11 and the beginning of Romans 12 that we thought, um, what better time, as this has been a while that we've been in this book, and we've been in this letter that Paul writes to the church in Rome, um, to take a little bit of a break from our series for the summer. As people are often coming and going and not always here every week, um, really what happens beyond this in Romans really does build on itself, and we want to be able to bring everything everyone through that together. Um, And we also wanted to take a period of time um, to go through something a little bit different. So what we're going to do is we're going to spend the summer in the Psalms. And um, and then we're going to pick up in the fall uh, on Romans, starting in chapter 12. Um, And the other benefit of that is that if you're part of a life group here, that you'll have the ability to really kind of talk through and work through the things that we're talking about in the rest of Romans. And it won't be during your summer break as a group. That's a little plug there for life groups, but we'll get more to that in the fall. Um, We're really put the pressure on you then. So a little bit about this series. Um, what we uh, This is actually um, not the first time that we've preached on um, these specific psalms or that we've gone through these as a church. In fact, um, the first sermon series that I ever did in this church as a lead pastor was the Summer of Psalms. And you're probably thinking, well, it sounds like you're getting lazy, right? Um, and yeah, that's all it is. Um, no, the, what, what we're going to be doing in this series is we're going to be focusing on, um, on a group of psalms that are known as the Psalms of Ascent. Um, now, the Psalms of Ascent are Psalms 120 through 134, and this morning we're going to start in, verse, in, in Psalm 120. Now, these psalms were um, sung or recited um, by the people of Israel as they left wherever it was that they lived um, to go to Jerusalem for the holy days. Jerusalem was the highest point in the area, and so the idea was that as you went to Jerusalem, you were ascending the hill of the Lord, people would say. And there was a lot of metaphor tied in there with not just going to Jerusalem to be with your people during the holidays, during the holy days, but how much that mirrored really the life of a Christian as it is, which is what we're going to be talking about. And so these psalms were read or recited by people, by their families, by their groups as they spent uh, days and weeks, oftentimes it was weeks, traveling from where they lived to Jerusalem for whether it was the Passover to celebrate um, um, God bringing his people out of Egypt, whether it was uh, the days of um, um, of unleavened bread, whether it was the Feast of Tabernacles, which uh, the Feast of Tabernacles was when they took a week and they celebrated, they also called it the Feast of Booths, which they celebrated God providing a way for his people to live, um, even in the midst of the desert, even in the midst of the wilderness, when all they had to live in was tents. Um, that the idea was uh, that we would remember how God provided for us in this time. Um, there was all sorts of Jewish holy days that people had, but, but they would leave wherever they lived, depending on what time it was in the harvest, and they would ascend to Jerusalem. As they did that, they recited these psalms, and these psalms, as we will see as we go through them, really talk about these very important things, and they mirror what it is to be a follower of Jesus, one of the people of God, who is on a great journey to see him and to meet him ultimately. 
This morning, we're starting off in Psalm 120. Um, Another valuable thing about uh, the Psalms of Ascent, as people in the church have studied these for thousands of years, gone back to them. You know, in, in our tradition, we don't have a lot of tradition. In our tradition, we don't have a lot, of, a lot of liturgy, a lot of things that we do over again. In fact, we often think that that's like a bad thing, right? Everything has to be brand new. Everything has to be something different that wasn't done before. Um, maybe Easter and Christmas will do the same stuff then, you know. Uh, but otherwise, uh, we won't. I think what the church has done for many thousands of years is has gone back to portions of Scripture like this because they find it uniquely helpful in certain times. And one of the things that the Psalms of Ascent are really useful and valuable for in the life of the church is times of transition. Uh, times of transition between life stages, uh, between jobs, uh, between uh, uh, one reality for you and another. Uh, you, you might find yourself moving. You might find that, yourself, that you're recently retired. Uh, you might simply feel like summer's always a transition. It's a transition from one thing to another. I talk to so many people right now who feel like for the last couple of years, they've been in some kind of weird transition that they weren't even in control of. And so I find that these are a really valuable thing to be able to go back to and look at in a time like that. So I'm going to read Psalm 120. We're going to put it up on the screen, and then we're going to walk through it this morning and talk about it. Psalm 120, and if you have your Bible, you'll see it says that probably at the beginning of this psalm. It says that it's a psalm of a sense. Psalm 120 says this. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kidder. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. As Steve mentioned when he began reading this this morning, this psalm begins in kind of a weird place for something that's supposed to be uh, sung or recited at a time that people are so excited, right? Everybody knows when you leave to go on a big trip, especially when it's one you're looking forward to, you're excited. And you might read this and you might think, is this literally just a case of somebody getting out of the house badly? Maybe like having a really hard time getting ready to go? I'm sure none of us know what that's like, right? You've got a big trip coming, you're ready to go, you're planning for it, you do all the work that has to be done, and then you find yourself getting out of the house in the worst possible mood ever. And the last thing that you think is to, is to praise and sing praises. You go, is, this, is that literally why this is so negative? I mean, why start a group of psalms meant for such a hopeful time by immediately saying, I am in distress. And in my distress, I called out to the Lord. What we know is that that's how it starts. Is that the psalmist begins uh, this first psalm of this great journey by talking about how bad everything around them is. And the way that they talk about how bad things are is they talk about lies. The psalmist is saying here that they are dealing with uh, lying lips and a deceitful tongue. Lying lips, 
People are literally lying to them, the psalmist is saying, this is very personal, and lying about them. They are encountering lies, and it's wearing them down, and they hate it. They feel awful. It's putting them in a place of distress. This is a deeply personal psalm. They're not just talking about like how everyone's feeling. They're saying, I feel this way, says the psalmist. And beyond just lies, things being said that aren't true, they say there's a deceitful tongue as well. A deceitful tongue is one that manipulates, one that tricks. And they say, I'm seeing uh, there be people in my life who are manipulating, who are not being honest who are deceiving me and the people around them. In short, I cannot trust them. I cannot trust what they say. I can't trust their intentions in saying what they say. And what that means is that I can never, ever let down my guard. The person writing this psalm is saying that I live in a place where I cannot trust the people around me to be good. And because of that, I cannot let down my guard at all. They go on and they say that the way it feels is like I'm under attack. That it's like a warrior's sharp arrows. That these things that people are doing are hurting me personally in a way that feels physical. And I don't know what to do about it. The coals of a broom tree, a broom tree was a type of tree, a wood, that when it burned, it burned extra bright and extra hot. And they're saying, that is how hot these words burn, how painful this thing is. There is no sticks and stones uh, won't hurt me kind of language going on here. This is a person who absolutely believes that the words of other people the lies of other people, the aggression of other people can absolutely hurt to the point of feeling distress. This psalmist is just exhausted, living in the midst of people who say and think and believe and do very evil things. They go, I just can't even trust what they say is going to be true, is going to be real. Can you imagine how hard that would be? It's probably hard to. Can you imagine how hard it would be to live in a world where you can't really trust the people around you? Where you can't really trust the things that you hear and read and see? That you don't even know how to take in information because uh, you believe that people aren't coming from a good place, but they're coming from a selfish place. They're coming from a corrupted place. They're coming from a dishonest place. How much would that wear on you? I experienced this just a, in a little focused taste this last week when Ellie and I made the absolute terrible decision of trying to buy a car. Buying things is fun. I love buying things. It's great. I love researching them. I love doing it, pretending like I have money. And uh, nowhere do you get to pretend like you have money more than buying a car, right? They don't care how much money you have. And so we decided that we're going to go in 
I know, to a car dealership, I know, and we're going to try to buy a car. And we, uh, we decided we weren't going to bring our kids because you can't take kids with you to go buy a car uh, because uh, kids, uh, they just like, you know, there's, there's no way you can play it cool with kids being with you, right? They just like immediately like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it, especially if you drive a pretty, pretty worn down car and then they get to see what's out there now, right? They see them all, they look at them all, this thing's got this, this thing's got this, I can't believe it, you have to buy this, this is amazing, this is awesome, well, the person's right there next to you. And so no, it doesn't work to bring kids with you. And so Ellie and I went to, uh, to look at a car. And we went in and surprise, surprise, they said we don't have a lot of cars right now. And we definitely don't have the car that you want. But you know what we do have? We do have this other car that just happens to be here. You're not going to believe it. It just happens to be here. So why don't we just go look at that car? And we went and looked at the car. It's a pretty nice car. It's a lot nicer than the car that we were planning on getting. And he did a really good job of pointing out all the really nice things about this car that was nicer than the one that we were planning on getting, you know. I mean, you could basically put your phone down anywhere in this car, and I think it charges. Like, I think you put your phone on the window, and it will just charge, right? I think it's got moon roofs all around the car. I think it's actually one of those things that, like, you just drive it into the water, and then, like, a boat, it turns into a boat or something like that, right? But the seats don't get ruined because they're the newest quality leather, something you've never seen before in your life. So as we began talking, we said, you know, I think this is just not the car that we're looking for. It's great. It's great. But it's not the car we're looking for. So how do people get cars down? They say, well, you've got to order them. All right, well, does it cost any money to order a car? No. Sounds like the thing I want to do then. So we sit down, we start talking, start kind of going through, you know, the work of ordering it. He says, okay, I think, I think I can find one maybe somewhere that might be coming here someday at some point in some time stream. So let me go look. Comes back, piece of paper. Okay, I think we've got one maybe. Here's what it is. All right, sure, yeah, we'll put my name down for it, whatever. All right, we'll get all this information. Sounds great. Comes back. Boy, you're not going to believe what just happened. <laughs> you, my, my manager really likes me. They, they like me a lot. And because they like me a lot, they gave me a pretty good deal on that car out there that I was showing you. Remember that car that you were like, well, guess what? Now I think you can afford that car that I was showing you. Now, when we walked into this place... I felt a, like, a, like a weight of oppression upon me when people talk about like demonic forces and stuff. I feel that when I walk into a car dealership because the moment I walk in, I'm like, all right, all right. I'm not going to believe anything I see. That coffee isn't free. That stuff doesn't look that good. I'm not going to look happy. I'm not going to sit down. I'm not going to do anything. I told my kids, I said, if you ever come into a dealership with me, if they ask you any questions, you just say, I'm wanna, I can walk out of here right now. I can walk out of here right now. Any minute I can walk out of here. I'm gone. I hate it. I hate that feeling where you cannot trust anything. And you know what, if you're a car dealer or if you sell cars, then I just want to say right now, do better, okay? That's what I'm going to say to you, okay? I'm not going to say anything other than that. Because the weight that I feel walking in there and every single thing, and then the guy would walk away and, and I'd be like, Ellie, do you realize like we have no idea what's real? This is all smoke and mirrors. I don't know anything. There could be 50 cars back there. In fact, I was trying to get her to get up and walk around and go see if she could find cars. There sure were a lot online when we looked, but you know, somehow they disappeared. And then it got worse because Ellie had to go get the kids. 
He tried to get us. He, he made this really great deal. We, we could drive the nice car to go get our kids. I was like, I don't think we're going to do that. So we, we, she leaves. She leaves me. <laughs> and I'm there. And it's me and him. And I'm thinking, I work with people, you know. I know people. I think I can do this. I think I'm up for this. This guy's like 15. I think I can handle this. <laughs> and then he came back again and said, okay, here's the deal. I got to level with you, okay. I don't know what it is about you. I don't know what it is about me. But for some reason, my manager is in the best mood I've ever seen. And you got to understand something. At this point, that car out there that's just calling to you uh, is basically the same price as the one you're trying to order. So let's, I mean, just I need to know for my, so I can sleep at night. I need to know why on earth do you not want that car? Tell me. I can't live with myself not knowing. I said, I don't want all that stuff. That's not the car that we came for. And he's like, well, what about this one? I said, I'm not even totally sure I want this car. He said, excuse me? I said, well, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, yeah. He says, well, I mean, I said, do you have any used cars? And he's like, oh, don't even talk to me about those. And it got really intense and it got really like aggressive. And I was like, what is happening here? All of a sudden, this nice guy who was offering me free coffee was like, he sat back down and he said, listen, it sounds to me like you're not very committed about this. And you know, here we like to do business with people who are 100% committed. Not 50% committed, not 80% committed, but 100% committed. So I think you should just go home, and I think you should probably talk to your wife, and I think you should decide, we're not going to put your name on this car, we're not going to do anything today, I think you just need to go and probably think about this thing. And he just got me up, and I said, do you have a card? He said, no, uh, but I have your information, so I'll text you or something like that. And I left in disgrace. And I walked out, and I stood outside, and I waited for my family to come get me. And I wasn't waiting in the right spot, so they pulled up, and they didn't see me. And then I catch them, finally, and they all got out of the car, and they're all, like, walking in the dealership, holding hands, like, ready to go. This is it. We're going to see our new car. And I'm like, this is the worst thing that could possibly happen is a family walking in. So I'm like, get back in the car. Get back in the car. Get back in the car. We've got to go. We've got to go. We've got to go. And we get in the car, and we drive away. And, and I said, it's not going to work out. It's not going to work out. And my kids are like, Dad, what happened? What happened? And I said, guys, they tried to sell us this car. It was not the car that we were looking for. And they're like, well, what did it have? And I started telling them what it had. And they're like, are you kidding me right now? It has a sunroof. You need to go back and you need to get that car, Dad. You need to go back and get that car. I don't care what it takes. Go back and get that car. You can afford it. You have money. You spend money on, like, wood and other boring stuff that you don't need. So go buy that car right now. I said, well, if we buy that car you're not going to have stuff that you like. And that just completely shut the whole conversation down. <laughs> it's completely silenced the car, the conversation. And for the rest of the day, I was like really upset and I was filled with angst and I was anxious and I couldn't quite figure out why because I honestly didn't think that I, that kind of a thing would affect me that much because I know the way it works. I know how the system works. My dad taught me all this stuff. But there's something about walking into a situation where you know that you cannot trust anything that's happening around you. It's like not a safe place.
place at all. And how much it wears on you, and then you leave and you go, how is it supposed to be like this? This psalmist is talking about life in a world that is extremely exhausting. I have done manual labor and physical labor in my life. Uh, I have dug ditches. I have hauled concrete. I start working on something, and I will work long into the night, and I won't stop to eat, and I won't stop to drink, and I won't stop to do anything. I'll just go, go, go. And yet I have never felt as exhausted doing physical labor as I have when I'm around people or in an environment where I just can't be okay, where I just can't trust what's going on around me. You know what that's like, to be in a place that's not safe or to be with people who are not safe, which is why it means so much to us when we're around people who are. For the person on the journey to the Holy Land, the psalmist who's speaking here, they are thinking about getting to Jerusalem. At the highest point of this holy place, seeing their friends and their other fellow worshipers, and finally being in a place where they can be okay and they can be safe. And you might hear that and you might say, well, that's, that's maybe how some people are. Sure. Some people lie, some people are deceptive, some people are difficult to be around, some people make the world a bad place, but that's not everybody. That's not normal. In 1950, um, an author, a British author, he was a, um, he was a professor, a philosopher, and a teacher, and then he joined the British Army in the 30s, and he fought in World War II. And when he came out of the war, what he experienced in the war changed him so dramatically that he wrote a book that he wanted to reflect the nature of people in the way that they are. And this man, William Golding, wrote this book about a group of boys who were left, who found themselves on a desert island to show what it would be like if we just were left to ourselves and not corrupted by all these other things that grown-ups have in the world and politics and war and strife and all those things. He called that book Lord of the Flies, and they make you read it in high school for a reason. Because what that book is about is about a group of boys who ultimately uh, descend into chaos, into fighting. It gets ugly. And we use that phrase, it's Lord of the Flies, it's Lord of the Flies, to describe what happens when a group of people turn on each other. The point of that book that is so powerful is, is that that is normal. When left to ourselves, when we try to make things as good as we can make them, we will continue to find ourselves in a place of deception, of untruth, of destruction, of war, of strife of selfishness, of pride, of greed, of envy, of all the things that the Bible tells us that we should really be watching out for. One of the biggest things that I see tearing people apart is fighting amongst one another over what normal is. We get very upset because we believe strongly that what we want the world to be like is normal. And all these other people out here have, are just the weirdest people ever. I'm, I'm fighting for a normal life. I want a normal world. You've got to be kidding me that that's not normal to you. And what I know is that I'm right about what's normal and the way things should be. 
And we fight more about that than we do about anything else. We get upset when we feel that other people infringe on our ability to live what we consider to be a normal life. And according to the Bible, according to the psalmist, according to a lot of other people who don't believe any of those things even, it isn't just a few bad apples that seem to be this way. This is what we're prone to as fallen people. The psalmist goes on and he says this, uh, he says uh, that he sojourns in Meshech, that he dwells in the tents of Kedar. These are two places that are like the furthest points possible on different sides of the map from where Jerusalem is. And the reason he's saying that is he's not saying he physically actually dwells there. He's saying it is as though I am living in the most remote place that I could, intense over there, with these sort of barbaric type people who couldn't be further from the kind of people that I'm going to meet and encounter in Jerusalem when I come here for the festival. You see, what the psalmist is saying is when you find yourself living in a world that feels like this, the response is to say, the reason I feel that way is because I am not meant for a world like this. That I am a pilgrim. I am on a pilgrimage. You see, the Psalms of Ascent perfectly mirror this journey to Jerusalem, mirrors the very journey that any believer or follower of Christ is on as they identify that there is something about the kingdom of God. I am working and living towards the kingdom of God, and it is not the world I'm living in now. I believe that that I'm not actually at home here, And so rather than try to make this home, I recognize that I am on a journey to something else. That I am truly a pilgrim. And as I head that way, as theologians for centuries and and people have referred to this process that we call almost discipleship, a long obedience in the same direction. That what it is to be a follower of Christ is to be a person that is on a road heading somewhere that they know is good, that they know is perfect, and that that explains why it feels the way they do to be where they are now. Peter says in 1 Peter that this feeling that these people, he identifies Christians as sojourners. He says we are sojourners. We are people who are living in a place that is not our real home. So when you feel this way, there's a reason you feel this way. Because you're living in a place that is not your true and real home. When a person starts out on a journey to the Holy Land, the first thing that's going to hit them is just how brutal the outside world really is. Anything about a journey that takes weeks is that you find yourself out in the wilderness in a place where you have much less security, much less safety, much less that you're used to and comfortable with. A lot of bad things can happen to you on a journey like this. And it is when you walk outside the walls of the place that you live that you're confronted immediately with all of the uncertainty and the deception and the lies of the world. You don't know who to trust. And to be honest, even the very place that you're leaving from 
doesn't seem all that great. What you know for sure is that the place that you're going is better. And so as you fix your eyes on that thing and your gaze on that thing, you say to yourself, I can either choose to live as a sojourner, as a person on a journey, or I can just try to adapt and get used to where I am now. God's people, through all the scripture, will struggle with wanting to settle down, to settle in, to build homes for themselves, to build lives for themselves, and to say, I'm just going to make the most I can of this kind of broken world that I find myself in. Rather instead than being sojourners. There will always be groups of people saying, come and join us and stop this pilgrimage to God's holy land. Stop this journey that you're on. Join us in our comfort. Join us in our fight. Join us in our ways of making meaning and purpose in this hard place. Or simply join us in our escape of it. So like each Israelite, the choice for each and every one of us, if we feel this way, if we look at the world that we're living in and we see the things that this psalmist talks about, if we, if we look at the world that way and we say, I believe that the reason it feels that way is because it isn't my real home and that I'm not going to be able to have the life that God ultimately called for me to design for me to have, created me to have in a place that is broken like this, then we, like the Israelites, decide all the time, constantly, if we're going to keep going on the journey. Am I going to keep walking in the same direction towards God himself, his kingdom, towards the Holy Land? Am I going to ascend the hill of the Lord and focus on him and on that? Or am I going to stop and give up and just try to make do with what I have? Now, for a long time, people have objected that Christians and other religious people are simply escapists. That, that what that means is basically the last thing we need is a world full of people who don't care about this world, who aren't willing to fight for this world. People who say, all I care about is heaven. All I care about is what comes next. And you know, I've heard that a lot, that concern from people outside the church. But I can honestly tell you, and I've only lived my experience, I've only lived around the things I've lived around, and I'm not saying this is true of everyone everywhere, but I have to say that my experience is that that's not the problem, actually. I would not say that the problem that we struggle with in the church today in America is escapism. The problem that we struggle with is an obsession to make this world comfortable enough for us to live in so that we don't have to think about the next one. That's, that's what I experience and that's what I see. I see us way too prone to, to, to fight for, to care about, to become entirely consumed with the things of this world because we really lack any focus on the kingdom that is to come that we're trying to get just as comfortable and fight for normal as much as everyone else around us who have no hope in the kingdom of God. What does it look like to do this? What does it look like to walk in this direction? I think that for the psalmist 
to be heading to Jerusalem for the holy days. What we have to assume is that this is a person who recognizes that the reason they're heading there for these holy days. We, we think about, you know, holy days as, as maybe things like Christmas, things like Easter. We think about, you know, when you all get together and you celebrate and you just kind of have a bunch of traditions that you find comfort and joy and peace in. That's not what this was. To go to these places, to do these things, meant that you were headed into a place where you were getting right with God. There were sacrifices. There was repentance. There was brokenness. This journey was leading you to a place that you knew was going to require you to say that I've got some stuff that I need to give up and give over to God. You see, I think the reason why it's hard to stay on the journey much of the time is because in order to stay on that path moving forward, we must have a lifestyle of something that we call repentance. That we have to be able to stop and say, and this is where it gets really hard. You may have been tracking all the way up till now. You may be like, yes, I feel like every day I'm in a car dealership. I feel like constantly I look at heaven and I go, yes, please give me more of that, right? No, I'm totally with you. I'm tracking with you. Here's where I'm going to lose a lot of you, okay? Hopefully not, but maybe I will. Is that what it means to truly embrace what Scripture teaches us about our place as sojourners in this world is this. Is that we look within ourselves and we say that the deception and the pride and the envy, that the desire for comfort, that the prone, the tendency to worship idols, things that are not God, that all of those things are things that I am prone to as well. How easy is it to talk about how everyone else needs to change so the world can be better? How easy is it to talk about how hard it is to live in a place where other people are messing things up for the rest of us who just want good things? The truth is, the more that we come to know and understand our own hearts, the more we recognize as believers that for us to be in this journey, this long obedience in this one single direction that often we find ourselves weary in is to regularly say, God, search my heart and show me where it is that my sin lies. And as I turn that sin over to you, I'm not trying to fix it myself. I'm not trying to do it myself. What a lot of us would rather do probably is say, okay, I kind of like this, but there's got to be a way for me to kind of like still make things work uh, without, you know, uh, all that repentance stuff. I don't need to be on the same path that people are on, uh, that they've tried to be on for thousands of years to reach this hill of the Lord. You know, one of the things that blew my mind for so long when I read the Bible was this idea that we believe that Satan was an angel who like knew God so well and yet decided that he was going to get a bunch of other angels together and they were going to over they were going to like defeat God. Like you read that you you're like what? Like what? How does that make any sense in the world, right? That like that he would actually like know how powerful God is and would get a bunch of other angels with him and say uh, we can do this. We can do it better than him. We can defeat him. We can be better than him. I mean, could you imagine the kind of delusion that that would take? The kind of self-deception that that would take? And yet that is exactly what Satan is guilty of. The ability to look in the face 
of what we see is true of God and then to say, I'm pretty sure I could come up with another way. I'm pretty sure that I can find a way to do this to where I don't quite have to do that, but I don't quite have to do this my own way. My own way where in the end things will be better for all of us. And it's deception. It's us being deceived. It's the arrogance of believing that we can actually come up with some other way that doesn't involve repentance. Church, we feel distressed much of the time. We live in a world where we can say the words of the psalmist so well. Lord, I come to you in my distress because we feel the weight of the world upon us. We experience the pain of things around us. But when I am in that distress, do I look to God? Do I fix my eyes on him and say, I am willing to take another step, a step of obedience in this direction to my father? Am I willing to do that in my distress rather than just stop where I am? Stop and fight. Stop and defend. Stop and try to justify myself or maybe just give up altogether and try to be as comfortable as I can. Ultimately, what the psalmist says that he is for is peace. He says, too long I have had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace. I am for peace. Shalom, the harmony of all things between people and God. Shalom is this like, is this word that the Jewish people use to describe what it could be like when things are the way God intends them. I am for that. That's what I'm for. And I still am reminded of how much others are for war. Others are for deception and lies and other things. You know, this last week, when there was news of a shooting, I first of all, wasn't surprised because I grow up in a generation where um, this is not surprising. And, uh, and so, honestly, it didn't really, you know, hit me right away, something this serious had happened. I've, I've grown so accustomed to reading about terrible things that happen and I also tend to feel like, you know, what's the benefit of really uh, thinking on this too much? You know, what can I do? How can I do? Like, what, what could I do? And so I find myself a lot of times thinking, um, you know, uh, I'll pray for people, but, but really, you know, beyond that, I just, I just don't, I don't see, you know, the point. And yet something kept happening to me throughout the week. And I'm sure it has to do with where I am in life and with my kids and just with, just with everything that's going on. But I just couldn't stop thinking about what had happened. Ellie and I would sit down and we would, t- we would talk about it each night. It would come back up and we'd talk about it again and again. And each time in tears, each time overwhelmed with sadness. Because really, like, I, I couldn't stop myself. I couldn't stop myself. And I'm usually pretty good at stopping myself from this. I couldn't stop myself 
from going to that place of thinking about these parents. You know, thinking about these, these family members. Thinking about the people in this community. I couldn't stop going there and thinking these, these thoughts in my own head about what if I, you know, went through something like this. And, and, and it would overwhelm me and overwhelm me. And what I realized in that is, is there is so much power in us as a people being for peace, saying we are for a better world and a better place. I know that I have more control over what I do and what I choose than I have control over anything else. But I also know that there is tremendous value in getting on my knees and going to that place that is painful and hard and saying, God, would you give me even a sense of what these people are feeling? The tension of a Christian is this, to be in this world but not of this world. To be present here, to love and to care for and to hurt with and to mourn with and to grieve with and to when necessary fight with people who we are in this world with as we are all subject to these things together, but to not be completely defined by and consumed with what happens here. We are a people who live for peace, for shalom. We are a people who have a hope that is greater. And because of that, we talk to our Heavenly Father and we say to him, God, I am in distress. Our world is in distress. Our families are in distress. I never thought this would be the world that I'd be living in. I never thought this would be the world I'd be raising my kids in. God, would you... Would you meet us here in this place? And would you help me to fix my eyes on Jerusalem? I'm on this journey. I am a sojourner. I have to learn how to spend the rest of my life in a land that isn't my real home. I have to learn how to make relationships with and how to be invested in and care for people in and how to raise a family in and how to work a job and how to do all these things in a world that is not my real home. There is nothing easy or natural about that. But the thing that we fix our eyes on as we do it is on the holy city, is on ascending the hill of the Lord, in the midst of all the uncertainty around us. Let's pray. Father.